Hello, everybody, and welcome back for another episode of the Teacher Takeaway Podcast. It is Aaron. I am hosting this week's episode, and I've got the lovely Alice Wiggers with me. Hello, everyone. Thanks for joining us again. And you have joined us for episode eight of season three. And today's episode is titled The Science of Learning. And we are going to be diving into the inquiry question. How do we incorporate pedagogy that reflects the science of learning? So this is a big one, but one that we have been looking forward to. And we are so privileged to have Dr. Nathaniel Swain with us. Hello, Nathaniel. Hi, nice to be here, Aaron and Alice. Such a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us. We are really excited to explore this topic um, with you tonight. But for those of um, you listening and you don't know who Dr. Nathaniel Swain is, he is a teacher, instructional coach and writer. He's recently joined La Trobe University School of Education and Solar Lab as Senior Lecturer in Learning Sciences. Nathaniel has taught a range of learners in primary school settings and has a background in speech language pathology. In 2019, Nathaniel founded a community of educators committed to the science of learning. So thanks so much for joining us, Nathaniel. We are super excited. Um, first question for you, one where we always like to start off. Um, we've just talked a little bit about your bio, but mm. tell us a bit about yourself and your journey so far as an educator. So I resisted becoming a teacher for a really long time. My mum thought that I had it in me to be a teacher from a pretty young age. She was actually my year eight year nine and year 11 maths teacher at my school. Um, oh, so wow. <laughs> I was surrounded by her as a teacher and as a parent for a long time. So I resisted it probably because I thought that oh, I've seen what teachers do and I want to do something different. Um, and I was pretty, you know, on the lookout for other things. I eventually did linguistics. Out of linguistics, I thought, what am I going to do with this? How am I going to get a job? So I did speech pathology and that was an opportunity to apply that love of language to um, helping students. And I fell in love with the educational side of speech pathology and helping those students who are having difficulty with language and with reading and with writing. And after, you know, just a few years of doing that and, and actually going into a PhD and working with vulnerable youth, um, I was increasingly aware of just how important the role the teacher plays in the everyday um, education and learning of students. And that if I was going to have the most impact that I wanted um, to, to help as many kids and as many, as many teachers as I wanted, I needed to, to go back and get a teaching degree. And that's exactly what I did. Um, and my mom was right. I absolutely loved it. And um, I've adored the classroom um, ever since. And um, it's been my pleasure to work in so many different kinds of classrooms, um, secondary and primary settings, and in the last few years at a school called Brandon Park Primary in the southeast of Melbourne. And um, really just throw myself into how amazing and how complex the classroom is. So my work really centers now on how teachers um, do effective teaching practices and how they can best ensure that every single student is learning as much as possible in every moment. So a big focus on literacy, but also numeracy and, and the other curriculum areas. I'm really passionate about the knowledge that students can build from the humanities and the sciences and the arts. Um, and I think it, if you can tie it all together really well, and if you get a primary school education and a secondary school education working really well, then students can just um, do so much with that time that they have with teachers. Um, I feel like there's, there's a lot for us as a sector to um, potentially work on and to potentially um, make use of. And I think we'll talk about some of that tonight. But um, I 
feel like you know teaching is in a in a period of a bit of renaissance um so there's a new re um reinvigoration of of what it means to be an effective teacher and so many schools are experimenting with this stuff and it's an absolute pleasure to be a part of that movement yeah and how are you finding the experience now being involved in like early career teachers mm. and their development I'm really missing the classroom like I'm missing the kids and I'm missing all of the amazing opportunities to interact and you know I love the element of performance in teaching as well and and you know holding a class yes. together and, and having so much fun you know you know grabbing out a storybook and, and putting on silly voices I'm missing all of that stuff it's a lot more serious and a lot more sort of um, you know, I, I try as much to be as silly as possible as a lecturer, but it's not as easy with a, um, a group of young adults. But um, what I'm liking about it is that I'm, I've got an opportunity to work with teachers in the first part of their journey um, and as they're preparing to enter the workforce. And it's um, it's really exciting to be working with them to connect the, what we know from the research and from my own classroom experiences and marry the two together from their placement experiences. So um, I'm really looking forward to the next few years of, of what that will look like and how we'll continue to shape um, the offerings that we've got at La Trobe because we're doing some pretty cool things in the initial teacher education space. Mm. Awesome. Leading, leading the way, I reckon. Oh, that's very kind. We, we, we think we're doing something quite different. So we are actively trying to use the science of, of learning to inform a lot of our decisions, especially in the literacy space, but um, increasingly in the instructional sort of space as well and sort of general classroom practice. Um, it's, it's not everyone's cup of tea. Uh, I think some, some um, teacher educators will feel like it's not aligning with their views. Um, but that's, you know, one of the, the things that we'd love to continue debating and also continue researching to see what works best to prepare teachers in the best possible way. And I think that's a really important part of our research as well as our practice. Yeah, and it's exciting mm. to see how that evolves, over, mm. like I said, over the next few years. Um, and interested to, and I know you, you briefly touched on it around the science of learning, but how can we as teachers take what the research is telling us about the science of learning and use that to inform the, our teaching and what we're doing in the classrooms. So, pretty big question. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna throw out some potential topics that we could cover, and so you tell me the things that sort of catch your attention in some ways, because this is a huge area and something I'm so passionate about. So, there's this thing called cognitive load theory that helps explain. Um, how much new information we can hold in our memory at one point, like our working memory. There's this thing called the forgetting curve that explains how easily we actually forget the things that people teach us. And if we don't review and revise it, it sort of disappears from our long-term memory. There's also a thing called the worked example effect. And the last one I wanted to talk about maybe was the curse of expertise. Um, so anything that strikes your fancy there that we can delve into? I'm intrigued by the last one around the curse of expertise. <laughs> interested to know what what that is so I think this is a good one because as teachers we look at a subject area and we you know sort of think oh, how would I solve this problem if I'm looking at a problem in maths or if I'm trying to understand what an author is doing in a text you you think of it and you look at it from your perspective um the curse of expertise is is essentially the idea that you can't always separate what you know from what you think your students will be able to do. So if you already know how to solve a problem, already know how to understand a text or to write something, if you're doing a writing lesson, it's very difficult to put yourself in the shoes of your learner. So um, there's this thing called the expertise reversal effect, 
which is a thing in cognitive load theory, which basically explains that novices benefit most from really structured and really guided instruction initially, where the, the key terms are really well defined and you take them step by step and sort of give them manageable chunks. But when you're an expert, so when it reverses to become from a novice to an expert, the kinds of instruction that benefit those kinds of learners are actually more open-ended tasks. Um, and ones where they have to solve problems more independently. And when they get step-by-step instruction, that can actually interfere with their ability to solve the task. So I guess the for us as educators, we always have to think like, oh, um, how can I actually see this from the learner's point of view? And what if, you know, what if there was things here that my students just wouldn't understand? So how do I break it down in a way that any novice can approach it? Um, and this links to the idea of what we might talk about later is the idea of checking for understanding. So if you've built your lesson around the idea that I want to know step by step whether my students are still with me, because as the expert, I can't assume that they're actually still with me and that they are thinking the same way that I'm thinking because they're novices. Um, so, you know, checking for understanding will tell you each step of the way whether they're on track or not. And that can really help um, to guide how the lesson flows and, and how much you have to go back over um, information to make sure that it sticks. Mm. that's good that's great love it and um you're just saying about you know that need to go back over things I suppose that links to I guess what you're saying before about the forgetting curve yeah so this is an amazing um amazing um uh, phenomenon that exists where um students essentially forget most of what we tell them um, and yes. most of the things that they learn so um and just <laughs> like all learning, yeah so <laughs> If you, if, if you want students to remember things, and um, if I think we can agree that learning should involve some sort of change in long-term memory, not just short-term memory, because otherwise, have we learned it if we've forgotten it next week or next month or next term? So if you want them to remember things, you actually have to um, build in some sort of um, retrieval practice or review. So um, learning, and this is summed up really well um, in this book called the power called powerful teaching where they talk about the power of retrieval practice and they say that information is so um fluid in in our brains and how quickly it goes in and then goes out you know every night we go to sleep and our brain prunes away all this information that it deems not to be useful um and if you don't review things um that information can just be gone so it's you had it one day you could do it one day you could remember it one day but then the next day or the next month mm -hmm. you've lost it so it's, it's so fluid that um in powerful teaching they've called it outformation is actually a better measure of um whether someone's learned something so not information because going in is just the first step it's whether you can retrieve it and whether you can retain it and use that information later so it's outformation um and so uh the 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 takeaway there is that if we want to avoid um, students forgetting everything we teach them, we actually need to review the things that really matter and review them regularly. Um, and the forgetting curve um, basically shows that if you review things um, the next day, but then increase the space between that review and the next review, so maybe the next week, and then increase the space again, review it next month, and then increase it again to next term, you have an opportunity to actually um, make sure that that information sticks. You don't need to review the same stuff every single day. Every day, yeah. But if you review it um, intensely initially and then it drops off following this curve that this researcher has um, found in, in actually testing himself on how to remember a list of words was, was the example, um, then you can ensure that those things actually stick for students. So it might be maths facts, it might be vocabulary terms, it might be... Um, you know, ways of putting sentences together. Uh, it, it might be mathematical formula or scientific sort of theories or concepts. Um, 
if you review them really quickly and at the start of each lesson and you have a, a schedule that you follow, basically I've reviewed this from yesterday. Now I'm going to review the stuff from last week, from last month and so on. And you have a schedule that tells you what you're up to in your review. You can actually get students to retain nearly, you know, not nearly, not everything, but nearly everything that you think is valuable for them to retain um, because you're, you're giving them an opportunity to test themselves and see if they remember it just before they forget it, which is how you actually build a stronger connection in their long-term memory. Mm, so really interesting. interesting. So interesting. There's so much to ponder and think about, yes. like you were saying, how to put that into practice. Mm. Um, so that's, the schools that's are doing this and, and it's a, it's something that people are experimenting with and they basically, cre basically create a set of things that they want to review. So it might be things that they've just taught or it might be regular things that the students just need to know and you know that they haven't got it down pat. So in maths, that might be particular maths facts or counting patterns or, um, you know, things like shapes that they need to remember or things from location and, and all those other concepts. Um, and, and they put it into a review cycle and they basically every day they do some sort of review. So it's a sample from all the things they could review. They sample and, and then they review those things. And students have like a 20 minute opportunity to be tested and to test themselves on this stuff yeah. so that um, every day they get more confident with it and that you can review it less and less and you move on to other things. And it can go from students having a pretty shaky remembrance of, of things because you've reviewed it you've you taught it once in term one and then you don't come back to it until term two or term three to actually having a pretty strong command of these um foundational sort of skills or concepts which means you can take them as a given um and when mm -hmm. students know them you can then use that knowledge to do all the the problem solving and stuff that you want to do later on yeah so interesting and what a like a great example of like you said like a a simple thing that we can do and I guess be strategic about how mm. we do it but it has a really powerful impact on obviously our teaching so that sort of leads into the next question that we had for you like mm. that's a great example of a really powerful teaching practice we can utilize have you got some others like what are some other examples of stuff like that that we can do that has a really big impact so you know one of the other things that we get from the the science of learning is the idea of um uh, cognitive load theory. So, you know, students can't hold too much new information in their mind at once. So there's um, there's a, a lot of experiments that have been done that show when you get students to memorize a, 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 um, a particular amount of information. And adults, we can do this with like random digits as an example. So if I gave you a list of digits that I want you to remember, um, you would be able to do it up to a point, but it would probably be around um, four to seven items at which you'd start to um, fall apart and you wouldn't be able to recall anymore um, after, after the stimulus has gone and I've asked you to recall them. So students are the same. If you're trying to get them to think about more than four elements at any one time um, that are, you know, that are separate, then the, the, their ability to stay with you and to be able to solve the problem actually starts to fall apart. So something to avoid that is to actually break things down to really clear chunks and to constantly check for understanding. So checking for understandings come from, um, you know, researching explicit instruction. And it's, it's really a powerful teaching tool because it's not about, you um, say asking students what they think or you know having an opportunity where you'd be like you, you say like oh did everyone understand which as a teacher you find yourself saying like everyone with me everyone understand you actually ask a question that students have to respond to that show that they understand so it might be something simple like a multiple choice or a yes no response you can do it really quickly with voting with their, their hands or with mini whiteboards um 
It might be that they have to provide a response on a mini whiteboard in terms of um, giving what their answer or writing a sentence that shows that they understand, or they might be doing a pair share or, or a turn and talk and then reporting back using um, the, the the real power with check for understanding is cold calling or using sort of sticks to, to choose students to speak mm-hmm. to. Because if you do a hands up policy, you'll have a lot of the same people putting their hands yeah. up um, and a lot of the same people who already know the answer. So you're not going to have an idea of whether it's a true check for understanding. So having a non-volunteer is what they call it in in, in explicit direct instruction, um, where you, you have a better sample of whether mm. the student actually understands. So that checking for understanding thing is pretty underrated in my view in terms of, of um schools um teachers find themselves saying like i don't want to talk for too long so i'll just i'll do a mini lesson and then i'll give them a task and they'll go off and do it this approach allows you to teach a manageable chunk whether a new concept or you show them a new skill or you guide them through a process and then you check for understanding and they basically recommend to do it every three or four minutes so every three or four minutes the students are doing something so they're responding in some way they're answering a question they're writing on the mini whiteboard they're speaking with their partner they're responding to a cold call so it's enabling this thing called engagement norms where they're constantly engaging and they're showing you that they're with you um and they're also you know you're you're giving them a reason to keep listening to you so you can actually do a whole lesson of um Mm -hmm. whole class instruction it might be 30 or sometimes 40 minutes long but because it's so interactive every three or four minutes they're doing something then you're able to get through so much more material and also know whether what you're saying is making sense because you're checking every three or four minutes that they're with you. So I've been, you know, you can do this in a reading comprehension sort of session where you're reading a text together. And, you know, after every paragraph, you have some sort of check to make sure that students are understanding the text. They do a pair share to answer a question about the text. Um, they, they write a response on a whiteboard. And if you see lots of like off topic responses or, you know, some, some, you get two answers in a row that sort of don't really make sense or they haven't really understood what this paragraph is about, you go back and reteach it. So you don't progress through the lesson unless you know that your students are secure in that understanding. And, you know, that takes you through the main parts of the lesson. So the the concept development in in EDI, they call it the concept development part. And then there's a skill development where you teach skills and and, and technical process. Then they do some guided practice. And then the independent practice happens at the end where you're not actively checking for understanding. You're letting them go off and do stuff. And um, that's the bit where you can go to those students that you know you've seen in that class that they've consistently had trouble um, with that thing. And I'm going to make a mini group with that um, yes. group of students and, and work with them. So checking for understanding is helpful from as a form of formative assessment, but it also allows you to help your students engage as you work through the lesson too. Great. Some really great examples in there. Like you said, it's, it's underrated, but also challenging, I guess, maybe some of those practices that we just do, like you said, with the hand up and we're mm. like, oh yeah, they got it. But like you said, so often it's it's just the same kids. Yeah. Um, or everyone nods. You say, is everyone with me? Everyone nods. Mm-hmm. And you're like, oh, yeah. Sometimes they're just politely nodding. Yeah. <laughs> you get little Johnny going, what are we doing? <laughs> yeah. yeah. And then Absolutely. you get to the independent practice part and you've got five or six students who aren't getting it because you can see yeah. that they're not getting it. And then you essentially have to reteach yeah. what you've just done before. And, and then, then you were like, yeah. but they were nodding. You were nodding. Why did you nod? Yeah. Can you say something? <laughs> yeah. And, you know, adults do it as well. You you politely sort of go, yep, yep, got it. And sometimes you don't even realize if you've got it or not. So the, the checking for understanding is an opportunity for the student to assess whether they're, they're getting the main point of that segment of the lesson. And then and before you progress, you sort of have that as the checkpoint, being like, okay, is everyone with me? You know, check for yourself. Did you get this? Have you got the same answer as me? Have you got a different answer that's also good? Or are you completely off topic? Mm-hmm. In which case you need to ask a question or the teacher needs to reteach. Yeah, 
and I loved how you said like like doing it like in fairly short spaces, like every mm. couple of minutes doing yep. it rather than say 10 minutes, ask a question, but doing it in those really like regularly every couple of minutes. Mm. And I totally agree with you. Like you would, you said like the, the focus would remain for a lot longer because yep. you're engaging them in the process as you're teaching. They're not sitting there for 10 minutes and losing. No, it's focus. constant chatter. Yeah. yeah. So you actually get this. Something's coming. Yeah. You get this pattern exactly where, um, the, the, the teacher's talking for a time and they're providing really clear explanations and you're, you're trying to un- explain what the next step is or what the next concept is. But then every few minutes, there's this huge sort of commotion as, as students are talking for each other and, and solving the problem together or showing that what they know to their partner, explaining something to their partner and then reporting back. And you're able to go from like, you know, everyone focused and listening to the teacher and, and getting everything out of that moment to working with each other and and solving problems to then reporting back to the whole group. Um, And there's nothing more exhilarating, I think, to watch than a a class that's fully engaged in each moment of that lesson. Um, Checking for understanding and those engagement norms. So bringing them back sort of to focus really quickly and having good routines for, you know, getting your whiteboards out and putting whiteboards down. Um, You know, we have like, um, I used to say to my foundation students and and other students as well, I would say clear your board, park your board. One, two, three four, five, and then five seconds is all it takes and they have to all be ready. Um, and that was a routine that we built so that it wasn't like a 30 second thing every time for someone to be like, oh, I'm yeah. going to put my wife yeah. there. I'm going to, you know, wasting all that time. So you um, checking for understanding and those engagement norms make use of all of that um, classroom time with you as the teacher and then the students responding as well. Hmm. A powerful example of mm. formative assessment and really using the information that you gather in those short chunks to go, right, I need to pivot this mm. lesson because what I'm doing is not hitting the mark and yep. shift so that you don't get to the end of the lesson going, oh, my God, the kids learnt nothing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and that it's a, such a common practice, common experience. And I've, I've had that myself being like, oh, gosh, what happened? They didn't get anything. And yeah. it's so soul-destroying. Soul yeah. And also, like you said, a really powerful way for us to be doing that formative assessment. So when we get to that, um, you know, guided or independent practice, mm. we straight away know those kids that I need yes. to work more intensely with. You know, mm. sometimes in that time you're walking around and it's right at the end of the lesson, like, oh, these five kids I need to do that again mm-hmm. with. Mm. But I've done that. So when I go into that sort of phase of learning, I know mm. straight away I need to take these these three or these five kids and we need to, you know, yep. go back to that guided or modeled and they might not get to independent practice that lesson because they just need more of the guided practice or the or the model practice exactly so good oh my my head i i can see yours aaron going round and round my head is just going yes lots of yes lots of our heart moments it's really lots of our heart moments really nice we could just stop here but let's keep going (laughs) (laughs) i'm interested to hear because we've talked about lots of really easy practical things that we mm-hmm. could put into practice tomorrow mm-hmm. in classrooms. What are some of some of the approaches that don't align well with the with the science of reading or the science of learning? So th- there's quite a few things that are really popular and that have been the mainstay in our classrooms for the last 30 years. And you know, it's it's to do with the, the shifts in education towards um, you know, social constructivism and the idea that students can teach themselves best and the role of the teacher is more of a facilitator. I think those ideas have been really popular and, and, and reflected in a lot of our decisions and intuitions we have as teachers. But unfortunately, some of 
those ideas, like the, the, you know, saying it should be more student directed or having a big focus on learning everything through inquiry that's, um, you know, controlled by the student is that it forgets about the, the things we've sort of talked about today that novices learn very differently from experts. Um, and that there is a limit to what we can hold in our working memory. There's a cognitive load effect that happens. Um, and you, if you, throw students into the deep end sometimes they're, they're actually not going to make the connections they would have made if you had explained it to them and then shown them the steps. Um, so there's this other thing called the worked example effect, which um, is basically a way of modeling problem solving for students. And it showed that novices and intermediate sort of level learners really benefit from not just hearing about um, multiple ways that you could solve a problem. You know, we talk about multiple strategies for doing something in maths or um, giving them multiple ways to attack a problem. They actually benefit from seeing one solution, one worked example of a solution really clearly step-by-step step, and then being able to do a similar example um, themselves and giving basically focusing in on what the, the model has done and what the teacher has done in that example and then how they could do it themselves. So um, that, that level of guidance and that level of, you know, breaking things down for students and having that amount of teacher, I guess, direction is pretty unpopular at the moment in schools. Um, but it's, it's the logical follow through from what we know about um, the brain, how we learn, how easily it is to, to forget things, and how the fact that um, novices actually need a lot of guided instruction rather than um, unguided or um, sort of student-directed instruction. So that's probably the big one. It's it's interesting that it's kind of the not in thing at the moment, if you would like the having worked examples and and showing kids, you know, what a good one looks like and a good model and and you know, how to construct that is so powerful in the classroom. And it's, and it's interesting to hear that it's kind of, I guess, being put on the back burner um, in favour well, of other kind of methods. So there was this big movement in reading and also in maths where the shift has moved much more towards student-directed learning and that um, it's, you know, to do teacher-directed learning with the, like we were describing before, the teachers at the front of the class, they're getting everyone's attention, they're explaining, and then they're directing what happens next. It was seen as really old hat and, you know, really mm. um, sort of traditional. And what I'm describing is actually really cutting edge and not like the teaching back before constructivism happened. So in the fifties and things like that, it's actually really interactive. You know, every three minutes, the, the students are yep. doing something very, very active, but the teacher is still directing it because we're working with novices and we know about cognitive load, that there's only so much that students can think about at one time. So we're breaking it down for them and we're checking for understanding at each step in the learning. And then they go off and do their independent practice. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. What the, the shift towards constructivism back in the 60s and 70s really led to, in, in the reading space, a really whole language view of, of reading where students learn best by just reading lots of texts. And students learn best by being surrounded by literature and they don't need to be taught the nitty gritty of, of how language can be broken down in terms of the, the sound letter patterns or sentence structure and things like that. So um, th that's sort of how it looked in the, the reading space. In maths, it was the same. It's sort of this, this push away from learning mathematical facts and, and times tables and things and saying that students just need to be immersed in numbers and, and giving them opportunities to solve rich problems. And, and there's still a big push right now with, um, in terms of talking about rich tasks and um, teaching through um, open-ended and rich tasks rather than providing instruction. So, you know, the teacher standing at the front of class and showing a worked example is the exact opposite of what the rich task or problem-based 
sort of approach to maths is, is saying. Um, unfortunately, the, the rich and problem-based approach doesn't take into account that you've got novices. Some of them don't have those foundational skills. They won't have the maths facts that they need to solve those problems, um, nor the conceptual understanding of what's happening. So some of the kids will thrive in that environment. And many of the kids do thrive in a constructivist environment. Many of us have, have done well in, in the last 30 or 40 years in our own schooling um, where we've, we've done fine. But there's a portion of our students that don't benefit as much from such student-directed um, approaches because they don't have the background knowledge or the, the skills or the, the natural abilities that would let them thrive in that sort of um, way of teaching. So it is, it's frustrating that it's not popular, but you can sort of understand it with the movements that happened in the seventies and eighties that removed a lot of the traditional sort of teaching and replaced it with more student centered and student directed stuff. Yeah. Um, I think what's happened is that it's, it's gone way too far that way. And there isn't an opportunity for the teacher to, in a, in a regular classroom to feel like, oh, it's my job to actually jump in and explain it. And it's okay for me to break it down and to, yeah. to take control of the lesson for this portion. Yeah. Yeah. Would you would you say the narrative is starting to shift with with lots of the conversations that we're hearing now and seeing, you know, with the Think Forward educators and lots of stuff that comes out of La Trobe and some of the other things, um, you know, the science of reading, mm. Facebook group. Mm. I, you know, I'm starting to see the narrative shift, particularly in the space of um, literacy and particular reading and writing, um, which is which is encouraging to kind of see. Would you say the same for mathematics or do you think it's kind of behind the eight ball in terms of it's it's not quite where literacy is at the moment? Well, I'd say that the conversations about, about science of reading and about literacy have been really good the last, you know, five years especially. There's been a big focus on it. I do think we're still in a bit of a bubble in terms of what most teachers think about reading and 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 literacy because, you know, if you go into any classroom in, in you know, schools around Australia, you're going to see pretty, um, it's called balanced literacy approaches because that's just yeah. the norm. And there's still a lot of people who believe in that stuff. So there's a lot of um, consultants and a lot of lecturers out there who are still teaching it um, because they align with that social constructivist view and that pure constructivist view where the teacher teacher's role really should be a facilitator um, is, is the, the main sort of gist of it. I think in the math space, um, it's, it's definitely still a very live issue as well, um, but there's probably there's not as much voices in the um, sometimes they call it the science of maths view where they look at the science of learning and they apply it to maths and they think, well, how, if we know about cognitive load, we know about the forgetting curve and, you know, the, the curse of expertise, how do we break this down for students? Those views aren't as prominent, I don't think. Mm. And there, there has been a lot of pushes in the last five years, especially for those rich tasks and for those open-ended problems. And the teachers are doing that for good, you know, for good intentions because they believe that math shouldn't just be about memorizing facts. Um, just like the people in the literacy space said that um, we shouldn't just be about memorizing sound letter patterns, which students should enjoy literature. But I think in both of those arguments, um, we're, we're sort of wrapping it all up into something really either or. Like there's an opportunity to see that students should be able to read interesting texts and learn from literature, but also can be taught how to read to begin with so that they yeah. can actually read independently. Yeah, because um, so yeah, decoding <laughs> is important. They need to be able to read what the words say as well as yeah. understand what they mean. And I think yeah. it, the same could be applied for maths as well, that you want to get to those rich tasks. You want to do lots of open-ended problem solving, but most of your students mm -hmm. are going to need a lot of instruction in how the mathematical concepts and fluency sort of works because it's not a natural skill, just like... Um, Reading isn't a natural skill. It needs for that explicit instruction. Yeah. 
And I love what you were saying before too, because it just makes me think of things that people say like, you know, oh, we're just going back to the old chalk and talk days. <laughs> yeah. Like you said, where the kids don't do anything and they just sit and listen. But like you said, it's actually not. It's no. I guess it's taking <laughs> some of the fundamentals of that, but like we just talked about where kids are engaged the whole time. Yeah. And yeah. what we see is that, you know, we, we still talk about inquiry at, at a lot of the schools that are doing these things. But um, at the moment, inquiry-based approaches, if they haven't been part of a, um, a curriculum that teaches a lot of the knowledge that you need to make to ask good questions, it's actually inquiry from a place of ignorance because students are asking questions about things they don't really know. And you, you'll know yourself if you read an article or look at something that you're not familiar with and then you're asked, like, what's something you want to know more about this? you're going to ask pretty basic, pretty mediocre sort of questions because you are you don't have a lot of understanding. So I'd use the example often of like, you know, I throw an article on rheumatoid arthritis and I ask you, a non-rheumatologist, to give a summary of it and to say whether it was a good article or not and then to decide what the next research project should be. You're not, you know, I can know unless, unless you have a secret rheumatology power, I know that you're not going to make a, re- a meaningful um, contribution to that task because you need expertise in order to mm-hmm. jump into something as complicated as that but when you ask students to do the same thing with inquiry of um you know into the solar system or inquiry into the way that um society works and you know communities and things like that they're going to ask pretty basic questions if you haven't given them some foundations in the knowledge they need to understand those areas so that's where um, a knowledge-rich curriculum is something that's really powerful as well so um in our way of teaching reading we embed really interesting topics and teach students about the world that they live in um so we've got units on different parts of history and you know there's a whole unit on rivers and mountains and all these intricate details about how those parts of geography work and after they've learned a bit of knowledge they actually then go off and do the inquiry Hmm. and what they end up with is something really interesting so they actually ask really fascinating questions and go much deeper and much further with their learning than they ever would have done if you did the inquiry first yeah yeah and it's and in saying that too i'm just thinking back to when we last season we had trevor mckenzie on and he was saying the same you read my mind he was he said the exact same thing that you were saying nathaniel inquiry isn't lack of explicit teaching he was actually saying Mm. you need explicit teaching to do inquiry it's not either or Mm. and it's not you can't be explicit because you're doing inquiry he actually said the exact same thing that you actually need it you can't mm-hmm. have inquiry, inquiry unless well. you've got explicit instruction mm. to support yeah. what you're inquiring about. Yeah. Otherwise you get the students. My my wife's a teacher as well. And um, she has this classic example of students going off and doing an inquiry project about ancient Rome in year seven humanities. And one student's um, are looking up, they, they had misheard the word aqueducts and were looking up aqua ducks. So oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> sort of floating at, um, birds that were somehow to do with aqua, even though ducks are already marine animals, so it doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, and other students were looking at Roman cars because that's all they knew about Rome was the fact that there was Lamborghinis and um, mm-hmm. Ferraris and things like that that are Italian. So, you know, not understanding enough about that topic to know that it's ancient Rome that an aqueduct is, you know, a way of transporting fresh water that the Romans invented. Like, you know, like what, yeah. what, what's the use in making a PowerPoint presentation or, or a series of images about that stuff, especially if you've wasted like three or four lessons on that topic? Um, yeah. You know, mm-hmm. it, it's an inquiry from a place of knowledge, I think is where it's at. Yeah. Yeah. We have, um, I think probably our listeners, because I know I'm thinking, thinking, gosh, there's so much to unpack from just the things that we 
have talked about already and we could do whole episodes on all of these things and you know if there's people listening thinking this is just so good i i want to know more about this how mm. how can teachers learn more about you know effective instru- effective instruction and the science of learning so th- there's a lot of great resources out there um i'll do a little plug for my um it's now a charity for um teachers is professional learning it's called think forward educators as we've mentioned already um we've got a lot of free webinars and things on there that people can upskill themselves on and we like to put as much into those as possible so experts have given up their time to talk to us talk to us about cognitive load theory um about we mentioned the knowledge which curriculum just before inquiry from a place of knowledge we've got things on maths we've got all kinds of stuff really um so there's a lot of free stuff available that you could sort of delve into um whatever tickles your fancy but I think there's some really powerful books as well that I want to sort of mention if that's okay um something that really shaped my thinking was this book by a cognitive scientist called Daniel Willingham um and it's called why don't students like school um and there's a um a third edition that he's just um put out recently which I haven't actually read but I'm sure is is even better than the second edition and it it takes you through some of these principles that we've been talking about this evening and says the logical um, implication for your teaching and why maybe the way the classroom is set up currently in most English-speaking countries is not always conducive to students enjoying and getting a lot out of the learning process. So it talks about knowledge, it talks about cognitive load theory, talks about um, the guided instruction versus unstructured teaching. Um, And it's pretty powerful in the way that he pulls it all together. there's another book that I've mentioned already called Powerful Teaching, which is a really nice um, introduction to some four, four major principles from the science of learning, one of which is um, retrieval practice. Um, and uh, that's that sort of re- constant reviewing of um, what you've learned so that you don't forget it. That one's really powerful. Um, and then Ollie Lavelle and Greg Ashman both have books on cognitive load theory written for teachers that are a really nice introduction. Um, so any of those two books are particularly good for giving you an idea as a teacher of like what is this whole cognitive load theory thing and how might I use it in my classroom very practical um, contributions that they've made to the space um, yeah so there, there's lots of people who are really excited about this if, if you're listening to this episode and thinking wow like there's a lot of new stuff here there's a whole community of, of people um, you know in, in things like the um, Alice mentioned the reading science in schools Facebook page. There's a whole community of, of teachers and educators there. Um, Think Forward Educators is, is growing and growing. Um, and there's there's other communities overseas as well that are, that are doing similar things. But this whole science of learning thing, science of reading thing is a, is really fascinating. Um, and it literally can completely transform, transform the way that you teach. And I have just added a lot of new books to my reading list. So <laughs> thank you, Doctor, for that. We know what we're doing in the holidays. Actually. Absolutely. <laughs> now I'm really I, excited to delve into some of those, some of those books. I find for busy teachers and parents as well, the audio books of these are really accessible. Mm-hmm. So if you have an Audible subscription, or even if you just um, get one of those audio platforms um, as a trial, you can listen to one of those books for free. Um, and I, that's how I got through a lot of reading during my very busy parenting sort of years with young kids and with through COVID and stuff like that. So um it's thought provoking and it's really um, enlivening sort of stuff when it makes you think differently about your practice. Um, and yeah, the, it's a, it's a really the start of a journey because it's a big place once you start looking into it. Yeah. yeah. It's definitely a rabbit hole. 
Yeah. <laughs> Aaron and I have been down that rabbit hole yep. for another number of years. Yeah, yeah. can't get out now. But I, I love what you were saying too, just on the audio audio books, because I have um, a 40-minute drive to and from work. Mm-hmm. So that's one of the things I do. If I'm not listening yes. to a podcast, I'm listening to an audio book because it's it's making good use of that driving time. So good. Um, yeah. So for those listening out there just thinking, I just don't have time, look for opportunities like that where you mm. can tune into, you know, a good read. Um, if you're doing a commute or something like that. I do it during housework as well. Like if I'm doing the dishes and no one's around or if I'm doing the lawn mowing, I've always just have something playing. Sometimes music because I need to like de-stress, but um, often it'll be an audiobook or a podcast. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's also this great app that you can use or different apps. There's one, one app that I use where you can take a PDF document, like a report or an article, and it reads it to you like it's an audiobook. So I use VBooks, for instance, but there's many others. But I found that really helpful because I get reports and things all the time um, that people send me. And, you know, I should be really, you know, making lots of time for reading them, but it's hard to fit that time in um, with all the busyness of our our lives, especially when I was um, full-time in the classroom last year. So those PDF readers can be really handy as well. They're pretty good. Like they sound a little bit, a little bit robotic sometimes, but um, it's actually a pretty good listen. That's a good tip. Another good suggestion. (laughs) Yeah. Put it in the show notes, Alice. Oh, I definitely will. (laughs) Um, How can our listeners get in touch and stay up to date with the work, the amazing work that you are doing? Because you are doing some pretty cool things in this space. Oh, thank you, Alice. Um, it, so I've got a website um, and a blog called The Cognitorium, which is a little made up word that I created, um, sort of a, a place of learning, if you like. Um, it's it's also at nathanielswain.com. Um, I've got all the socials and things like that. And I love hearing from people. So if you ever have a random question and you want to just get in contact, take with me quickly you can get me on facebook or twitter um pretty easily um we've also got this growing team at the solar lab at latrobe university and we are really proud of the things that we're offering through the solar lab short courses but also um we've got a new master of education with the language and literacy specialization that's um a really nice way for um teachers to continue their education and to look more into this stuff particularly um but yeah, it's, it's reach out anytime. I love hearing from people. I'm not the fastest on email, but on socials, I'm a little bit quicker. <laughs> awesome. No, lots, yep. lots of places we can get in touch. Well, what what a great episode. We, um, we're going to wrap it up and talk about our takeaways. So Alice, what are your takeaways from this chat tonight? Oh, there are lots, but I really like that idea of, you know, those three to, you know, four minutes, that short bursts of instruction and that, you know, that checking for understanding, just that constant formative assessment along the way and, and pivoting your learning and those observations that you're taking really made me think about how we're doing our, our daily review and our retrieval practice in my current context and what that looks like and how we mm. can kind of shift and tweak some of the things that we're doing to have a greater impact on our students and their ability to retrieve the information that they're learning um particularly in early stage one the kindergarten space where they're where they're just learning some of these skills how we can you know help them to build that and retrieve that um definitely a big powerful takeaway for me Mm, yes well I'm with you on on that one um I was really thinking on that reflecting on what some of our practices are around that Mm. retrieval and even just how we schedule it and that checking for understanding 
um, for me, are my two big takeaways to go away and really look at what that looks like in our practice. Mm. How are we engaging our students regularly? We've been doing a lot of work around being explicit and more explicit. And um, I, I really think that's something we can can add to be even more effective. So yeah, that's mm. my my takeaways from that, that chunking it into small components, like you were saying, Nathaniel, those four key things and then kind of sticking there before you giving them too much more so that you're not cognitively overloading mm-hmm. Over, yeah 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 fascinating there are just so much from this conversation to go away and ponder and for our listeners out there you know we'd love to hear from you and what your takeaways are and what your thoughts are after this incredible incredible conversation so Um, we've come to the end of the episode already they say time flies when you're having fun but um, Nathaniel that was just such a good chat thank you so much for joining us it's an absolute pleasure and if you ever wanted to delve into any of that more explicitly or if you wanted to look at particular areas of the curriculum I'd be more than happy to come back and chat to you again it's been such a pleasure good you read my mind because I was just about to say we (laughs) would love to have you on again to go deeper into some of these so you sure we'll we'll send you a link and book you in for some more chats but um thanks again for the the conversation it was just such a great conversation with so many takeaways we appreciate you giving up your time and being here to chat with us thank you Aaron and thank you Alice such a pleasure And that is it for this episode, episode eight of season three with Dr. Nathaniel Swain. We hope you've enjoyed it. As I said, we would love to hear from you and what are your takeaways and your thoughts after this episode. You, as always, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at the Teacher Takeaway Podcast. Um, Get in touch. We'd also love to hear from you if you have some conversations um, that you'd like us to explore more with Nathaniel in some future episodes. Hit us up, send us a DM. Um, you know, drop something in the comments, but thank you for joining us. We will be back with you again for another episode really soon. Take care.